0: We're going to be in Ephesians 4.25 this morning and covering an amazing amount of ground, 4.25 through 27. So, but don't worry, I will suck the marrow out of these three verses. So don't think you're getting away with the short teaching today. We are 33 weeks into our 52 weeks in the book of Ephesians. And we have learned a lot in the midst of this short letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the young church in Ephesus. In it, we look to understand much of the basic idea of Christianity. This book is amazing because a non-believer can read it, and quite honestly, after reading these short six chapters, they can understand a ton about who Jesus is, what he asks of his church, and who we are to be. At the core is a concept of the body of Christ made up of diverse individuals who unify into one whole body. And our job is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to reveal the wisdom of Jesus, and we have to do this together. And so at the core of this book, you see this idea, as we've looked at over and over again, this idea of the body made up of many members. And I read you this quote by commentator Max Turner in my introductory teaching. Let me read it to you again. This letter challenges the pietistic individualism and corresponding weak doctrine of the church that we so often find in evangelicalism. Don't look at the church, we say, look at Christ. Paul, however, expected the outsider to see Christ and God's unifying purpose for the world precisely in the church. Ephesians challenges all of us to find better ways of making our local churches real communities of people whose lives and worship together as a church witness to the cosmic unity begun in Christ as we are deeply imbued with his presence. And so we've spent the last 33 weeks looking at what I have termed the marks of a healthy church according to Paul. This is my take on what he's writing, and and I haven't reviewed this in a while, and so I wanted to this morning as we get going. The first mark of a healthy church we looked at at the very beginning is Jesus at the core. Jesus at the core. And you can write these down if you want. We've been going through these as we've been moving through Ephesians, or you can just listen. It's no big deal. Jesus at the core. Secondly, an attitude of gratefulness in the heart of the church. That everything is out of gratefulness, that we don't deserve this amazing grace we've been given. We don't deserve one another, but all these things God has given. Motivated by the gospel, the good news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place to atone for our sin and bring us into his kingdom. Fourthly, identifying as a new covenant community that we haven't been brought into the kingdom and then been siloed as individuals but that we've been brought in together to form a new family. Some commentators call it the new humanity, identifying as a new covenant community. And then as that community, we're on mission with Christ to reveal God's wisdom. Uh, this was in chapter 3 that we chapter 2 and 3 that we read about how we are being viewed by the powers and principalities of even darkness. And God is trying to show his wisdom through us, that only his grace could unify us and put us on the same mission. And then we saw the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit. That we as individuals are brought together in one body because we have one mission. We're drawn together into that oneness, that sameness in Christ. But we also have diverse giftings. And as we use those gifts to serve each other and build one another up, We are manifesting the Spirit. We talked about what it is to be a truly charismatic church as the Bible defines it, not as man does. And week before last, we began this latest mark of a healthy church that a healthy church is full of regenerated lives, that there is a regeneration in the midst of the church, that we live lifestyles that are not the same as the world, but we're peculiar people, we're different. Not just of clothes we wear and R-rated movies we don't watch, but because we have a different heart and a different spirit. And Paul is speaking to the Ephesians church, and therefore to all the saints, including us, that there is a lifestyle that followers of Christ actively commit to and live. The Holy Spirit empowers us, and we put in the effort along with the Holy Spirit. And to any of the Christians of the first century, what Paul is going to do here would make total sense, because he's about to give six specific commands. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, we broke down the Ten Commandments into four that are between God and man, and six that are between man and one another, within the covenant community of Christ. And so Paul is doing the same thing here as he's about to go into six commandments. Now for just the text today, we're going to take a look at just the first two. So let's take a look at Ephesians uh, 4.25, and we'll notice right there that the first word is therefore. And when you see therefore, what do you ask? What's the question? What's it therefore, there right? And you always can go back and you can look at what's before that. And so what Paul is starting with is therefore. So let's remember what's the therefore, therefore, and let's reread what we unpacked two weeks ago, back in four, Ephesians 4.17.24. and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed or regenerated in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul describes this process of stepping into the new life of a Christian in three parts: renounce the old self recognize Jesus as the true self, and then reflect him as you put on the new self. We went through this two weeks ago. And so we understand a bit of what it is to be justified and regenerated by God's grace. Now, I have not used my uh, beautiful stick figures that look like a restroom sign in a while, so we're going to use those to kind of illustrate the picture here, right? When we are enemies of God, we are connected in allegiance to the kingdom of darkness and as evidenced by the man there standing there, our hearts are dark. They are allegiant to the kingdom of darkness. Praise God that by his grace, he sent his son to die on the cross in our place, substitutionary uh, for us, and he became sin for us. He took on the sin that was allegiant to the kingdom of darkness, but he destroyed it And three days after his death, he resurrected, showing that he was allegiant to the kingdom of light, to Yahweh himself. And Because of that good news of the gospel, if we accept that, if we believe that and understand that and repent from our our allegiance to the kingdom of darkness and turn to the kingdom of light, we are now a Christian. But unfortunately, we don't suddenly go from a dark heart to a completely new heart. We have pieces of the old kingdom of darkness still attached to us. We have attitudes, thought patterns, neural pathways, addictions, relationships, and situations that keep us acting and living as if we were still allegiant citizens of the kingdom of darkness. It's kind of like this, and these are not bullet holes. My wife said, those look like bullet holes. They're not bullet holes. They're pieces of the kingdom of darkness still stuck onto us, okay? So, they do kind of look like bullet holes, don't they? Yeah, yeah, it's okay. This is my PowerPoint power, right? This is my It's bad PowerPoints right here. It's still stuck to us. What we know, though, is that we've been given a new heart and his Holy Spirit that helps us in our allegiance to the kingdom of light is powerful. And so from the point of justification and acceptance that comes purely by the grace of God, nothing we've done or earned, we then partner with the power of the Holy Spirit in what's called progressive sanctification. And we continue to be renewed in our minds and hearts to follow Jesus and slowly but surely what you see is that The kingdom of darkness falls away. And then one day, what we have to look forward to is that the fullness of that work of sanctification will occur when we are 100% in the kingdom of light. There is no kingdom of darkness any longer because it's been destroyed, and this is the day of glorification. Is anybody looking forward to that day? Jesus says through Paul, put down the old self, focus on Jesus, and put on his way in teaching and living life. And this is why throughout Paul's statements... He says very similar things. Romans 12, 1 through two is one of my favorites. I say it all the time to you guys. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present, that's an action, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We cannot call ourselves worshipers of Yahweh unless we present our lives as spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable acceptable and perfect. The grace of God has given us a new heart and a new spirit along with the word, and so we need to make it our highest priority to be renewed and to walk, not worrying if we're perfect or not, but simply focusing on the truth and attempting to follow him at every turn. And so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about speaking the truth in love, being shorthand for this kind of an understanding. Rather than being children swayed by error, we are to be mature adults speaking the truth in love to one another. Because living the truth out within covenant community is what causes sanctification to happen. And it's how we grow and build up the body of Christ in love. And so I submitted to you that Paul here in this text is using a similar method as in the Old Testament. We looked at Exodus and Deuteronomy, and we saw the covenants that were written out in those places, that they had an introduction, a summary, and then detail. And I submitted to you that Paul is doing the same thing here. He gave an introduction, we're now in the summary, and then we will look at the detail in relationships like marriage and with our bosses and with our kids. And so we come to Ephesians 4.25, having already looked at the introduction of chapter 4, and begun the summary of this covenant relationship. And today we begin looking at the six primary commands that Paul will give to enable us to walk in what it is to be his covenant people. And we start with the first two. And so let's look at Ephesians 4.25 and we'll see this first command. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another." This is not a suggestion, this is a command. And the command is, do not live based on the lie, but live based on the truth. Do not live based on the lie, but live based on the truth. Now let's unpack this, because Paul uses this phrase first, having put away falsehood. Let's think about this word falsehood for a second. To us, we read this in the English and we think, yeah, just don't lie. We think this is about telling the truth or lying. In wooden Greek, this word falsehood is actually two words. It's ta sudos You guys ever heard of pseudo? Somebody's a pseudo-Christian, they're a false Christian. ta sudos And what it means is, it means the lie. We must be careful not to just make this about being a liar or being truthful, It's intended to be far bigger than that in the wording that Paul's using. Remember that Jesus uses truth and lie to talk about kingdoms, two in particular, and the ruler of those kingdoms. Notice what Jesus says about Satan, for example, in John 8, where they're accusing Jesus of being from Satan. They're falsely accusing him. And this is what Jesus says to those Jews that are falsely accusing him. Look at what he says there. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies." The statement there, when he lies, has that same phrase, ta sudas. And so it would would be translated, when he speaks the lie. Remember when uh, Satan was in the Garden of uh, Eden with Eve? Do you remember what he did? Did he say, oh man, listen to God, he's full of truth? No, he whispered something. And it wasn't a blatant lie as we would categorize it today. What he did was he whispered a temptation to believe something other than what God had said. Did God really say? You guys have probably heard that whisper in your ear. Can you really trust God? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that whispered in your ear. Look around. Can you really trust him? Can you really trust this God who says he's good but if he was, he'd let you do whatever you want. You know that lie. You've heard it before. There are demons in this room today that are trying to whisper that lie to you. This is the lie, a questioning of God's trustworthiness, that he should not be God, we should. This is the core of idolatry. And so what we as humanity have done is to accept this lie. And this is why Paul says in Romans one twenty-five, because they, meaning the world, has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so when we think about lie and truth, we are thinking about kingdoms. Well, what about the truth? Let's think about what Jesus said about himself. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and, what's that word there, guys? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth because he is God, and truth is how he made the world. It's how it runs. It's the system upon which we are based. And so in 1 John 2.21, John captures this thinking of two different uh, kingdoms and the citizens within when he says this in 1 John 2.21. I write to you, he's writing to Christians, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie Is of the truth. So Christians are those who have put away falsehood. What that means is they live in the truth of God's will, not the lie of Satan's will. So being a Christian means you have repented from the lie and living according to the lie of Satan's worldly system, and you've turned to put your trust in the truth of Jesus Christ. But if that's not all, it's not just that word falsehood. Paul actually uses the having put away phrase before it. Having put away is very important here. Because in English, we, we think immediately in terms of time. Our, our language is very based on time, past, present, future tense. That's that's all we think about. Why do you think Americans are so worried about time? Because that's all we ever talk about. We talk about what we did, what we're doing, and what we're going to do. Notice it in your conversations today. What did you do this week? What will you do today? It's not bad, it's just how our language works, so it's how our brains are formed. It's time. That's not how the Greek functions, though. And so what Paul is stating here is not an action that occurred in the past. You, You have put away falsehood. What he's saying is he's using a descriptor. This is a certain grammar that actually says Christians are those who have put away falsehood. That means in the past, we repented from the lie, and every moment of every day when the lie creeps into our mind, we put it away. It is a past, present, and future. It is a descriptor, not just an action. You see, Satan is very, very tricky. And so Paul says constantly in his writings, you have to be smart to refuse the schemes of the devil. And we in America, we immediately go, the devil, demons, angels, come on, we're past that. We have science. We believe in science, right? We're so smart. But the problem is, is that Satan is very tricky. And often we don't know that we are caught in a lie until we are hit hard by consequences. Guys, I'll give you a a, a quick one here. Don't raise your hands. How many of you are working for the weekend? If that's you, you are caught in the lie. If I can just get to the weekend, I'll finally be happy. And then you get to the weekend and Sunday comes and what do you realize? It didn't make me all that happy. And if I can only get to retirement, man, finally I'll be able to do whatever I want. And you get to retirement, and the 12 of you that are, you know, in this room, because most of us aren't in retirement yet, you go, ah, this isn't as cool as I thought it was, right? I should probably go get a job so that I have something to do, right? We constantly are caught in the lie, and we don't realize it because we've bought into the worldly system. If I can just get the car, the boat, the Netflix, the whatever, right? How many of you turn to Jesus Christ when you need to be fulfilled, when you need to forget about the the pain in your life? Or how many of us turn to Netflix and zone out in order to get rid of the pain? We've bought into the lie. Are we living enslaved to the system of the world around us, or are we focusing on Christ and fighting back the lie? But also realize that much of the baggage we struggle with in life is simply the devil whispering lies of condemnation in our ear. It's amazing how many people I sit down with in a counseling perspective and I talk to them and they're repeating lies that they've been told and all I have to ask is, is that from Jesus or is that from Satan? Most of us never think like that. We go, well, it's a thought in my head so our bad pneumatology tells us it it must be from me or from the Holy Spirit. Well, no, there's another spirit out there and that's why the Bible says test the spirits. So when the devil speaks to us in a lie, he speaks to us in condemnation, and there is a huge difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation is from the lie. It says something negative, and it gives you no way out. That's condemnation. For example, a voice inside your head, primarily you ladies, because one in four women uh, deal with what's uh, called body dysmorphia, or believing they're ugly. Condemnation from the devil says, you are ugly. Period. Period. That's condemnation. But truth fights that. What does the Bible say about each and every woman in this room? You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's truth. See, the reality is, is condemnation gives you no way out. So what can you do in those moments where you hear a lie and it pops in your head and you think, where is this coming from? You refuse the lie, believe the truth instead, and tell the accuser to go pack sand. That's what you do. That's what a Christian does. I fear that so many Christians are not taught that, though. Now, if it's sin, condemnation says you are a sinner and there is no way out. You will never, ever stop being a sinner. And unfortunately, I hear that from pastors preaching cheap grace. Well, you're just going to be a sinner, so thank goodness God died for you because you're never, ever going to get sanctified. Good luck with that. That's more condemnation than it is the truth of grace. See, what Christ says about our sin is this. Yeah, you're a sinner. But I've given you a way out. I died in your place, and I've given you the Holy Spirit. And if you believe in that truth and walk in that truth, and you find yourself in active sin, here's what conviction is. Conviction is not the condemnation of you're a sinner. Conviction is remember your new identity in Christ and walk in that, not in the lie of the accuser. Conviction calls you back to your identity in Christ. Condemnation simply locks you up in the lie and throws away the key. That's the difference. Who's condemnation from? Who's condemnation from? Satan. Satan. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit and it brings you back to Christ. Now Paul is clear, we can't just leave it at putting away the lie. What we as Christians are also characterized by is speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. It's not just tell the truth, don't tell lies. That is a good rule to generally live by, but it is saying something different than that, as I said before. We must be a people that live and hold one another accountable within the truth and away from the lie. Let me show you something really quick. We in America have turned lying into the most unpardonable sin, right? If we find that there is incongruence in something like, let's say, one of our politicians said, even if they just simply made a mistake, we hold them to this account that no one can be held to. We say, oh, they're a liar, which means they're basically Satan incarnate. Now, to be sure, lying is not okay. But guys, have you ever actually read what the ninth commandment says? It says, do not bear false witness. That is not the same as lying. I don't know if you've ever struggled with the seeming incongruence in the Bible about people that lie and don't get punished for it, but I have for a long time, and so I'm very thankful for being able to share this with you today. Let me give you an example. How many of you remember the story of Rahab? Raise your hand. Anybody? Okay, the spies are sent into the land and they show up into Jericho and they're spying everything out and they realize they're getting chased by guards. So they show up at Rahab's house. She is a prostitute, and she says, No, I actually want to follow your God. Let me hide you. She takes them up to the roof, sticks them under piles of flax, right? Or wheat, basically. And the guards come and they knock on her door and she goes, Oh yeah, the spies, I saw them, they went that away. Truth or lie? lie? Lie. She lied. Bold face lied. But yet, here's what the New Testament says about her. James 2, 25 through 26. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? In other words, that was a good thing. (laughs) For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is what Hebrews says. She gets twice mentioned. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Good lie, Rahab. What? In our American folk religion, we call Christianity, this is not okay. Is the Bible incongruent? Well, in our moralistic, therapeutic version of Christianity, we've created this false understanding where we place the lie to lie as the greatest of moral evils and we disconnect it from God's heart. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm just waiting for somebody to take this soundbite and twist it and put it on the internet that Hans said it was okay to lie. Right? Please don't get me wrong. The Bible in no way condones lying simply for the sake of lying. But guys, think with me for a second about Nazi Germany. Think about the Germans that hid the Jews from genocide during World War II. Was it a moral fault to lie to the Nazi stormtroopers who banged down their doors? No, of course not. The higher value was the protection of the innocent and oppressed life of the Jew. God glories in works of justice, and in that case, the lie that protected innocent Jews from genocidal Nazis was a work of justice. So sin is not just breaking a rule. That's legalism. Sin is rebelling against God's heart as described in his word. And that is why the ninth commandment is do not, it's not do not lie, it's do not bear false witness. In other words, the command is do not testify in a way that mischaracterizes someone within the covenant community of God or falsely accuse them. That's that command. And this is why there is this requirement all throughout Scripture of when you want to make an accusation, you need to have two or three witnesses to make sure that the accusation is concrete, such as in Matthew 18. So what does it mean to speak the truth to our neighbor? Well, remember that this is shorthand for keeping covenant commitment to one another. And it comes straight out of Zechariah. Let's turn there really quick. Go with me. You guys are all still stuck on the fact that I said lying was okay, which is not what I said. But I'll bring you back around. So go with me to Zechariah 8, and I'll connect the dots for you. Zechariah 8. Take a look at verses 16 through 17. This is shorthand for the covenant community that he's talking about, and he's saying that his people should live in this lifestyle he says in 16 through 17, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. I am waiting to go into a Christian home and find those two verses on a magnet on someone's fridge. I've never heard a Christian use that as a memory verse. This is who the covenant people of God are supposed to be. And notice what Yahweh suggests it is that characterizes. There's no discussion here of his covenant people about the movies they watch. There's no discussion here about the clothes they wear. There's no discussion here. It's all about how you treat one another. And it's truth, justice, peacemaking, reconciliation, not mischaracterizing. It's very similar to the statement in Ephesians that we're reading today. In fact, the people that he's talking about here, it's the new Jerusalem. And look back at verse 3. He calls them here in verse 3. This, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. In the Hebrew, this is irha amet. It means the city of truth. This is actually a bad rendering. It's the city of truth. God's people are to be characterized by living a lifestyle based on God's truth, God's law. Overall, Paul in Ephesians is reminding the Christians of Ephesus that when we become accepted into Christ's body, we have a new identity. And Paul is saying, walk in that identity. Man, if this is the only message preached in the church, the church would change drastically. You know why? Because we mischaracterize and accuse one another without even knowing it. Just watch yourself. I am amazed. I've been kind of watching myself this week, right? Because I I have to preach this, so i got to look and see. Do I need to be convicted of this first? It's amazing how many times I start to falsely accuse someone without even meaning to. I say something about them that I don't know is fact, And luckily, most of what I've said this week has been positive things, but if you ever get into a place where you find yourself going, oh yeah, so, you know, Fred, he, uh, oh, wait a minute, what am I doing here? That's why gossip is such a crazy, terrible sin in the Bible. If we don't have a concrete understanding of the truth of another human being, then we shouldn't be saying something because we might find ourselves falsely accusing them. Paul said at the beginning of chapter 4 of Ephesians, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, therefore having put away the lie of the life you used to buy into. Speak and live in the truth of God's will and do it with one another in mind because we are members of one another. That's what this is saying in Ephesians. The last part of our verse here so far is so key brothers and sisters it says for we are members of one another we are a body made up of many members without the diversity of each of us as individuals there is no body but without the unity there is no body as well and so we must recognize in every area of our lives that we are not our own we were purchased with the blood of christ and we belong not only to him but to his body And the practical application of that is within our local church body. I love how the NIV renders Romans 12.5. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And every American bone in our bodies detests that. And we have to put away the lie that we are individualistic, self-made people. If we don't understand this truth and we each think that we are indeed self-made, self-confident, self-secure, self-assured people, we will not want to obey the command that comes next in Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. Go back to Ephesians with me and let's take a look at it. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Command number two, be angry at sin in your midst, but do not add to the sin. Be angry at the sin in your midst, but do not add to the sin. Now, I know I have been one to read past this many times and not grasp the fact that this is a command. There are some weird commands in the Bible, right? Don't eat bats. Uh, yeah, I don't have to worry about that one right? But in fact, if you want to go eat a bat, just FYI, that's been made clean, right? Peter saw that vision, don't call something unclean that I've called clean, right? So if you want to go eat a bat, you can. It's a weird command. But honestly, I think this is an even weirder command. Read the first two words in your Bible again. Be angry. Everybody say it with me. Be angry. What'd you learn in church today? I learned, my pastor told me, I need to be angry. Again, in our In our folk religion that we call Christianity, we have made, just like lies, one of the most mortal sins. We have made anger one of the most mortal sins. It's amazing how many people come to me and say, you know, Hans, i got to deal with this anger. And I'm like, well, what are you angry about? Well, I'm angry that there are children being put into slave labor in the middle of Kenya at four years old. Why would you not be angry about that? Well, I'm angry that, you know, my parents are cheating on each other. Why would you not be angry about that? Oh, I'm angry that I got molested as a child and I need to hurry up and forgive the person. Well, are they, are they repentant? No. Well, why, why would you not be angry with that? God is. Are you made in the image of God or are you made in the image of some person who forgives injustice? God doesn't forgive injustice. Be angry, he says. It's such an odd command. Well, the NIV and other translations, they try and fix this wrongly by inserting in your anger, do not sin. As if to say that anger is always okay as long as you don't sin with it. It's odd. But that wouldn't fit the rest of Ephesians because Ephesians 4.31, right around the page, says, put aside all wrath and anger. So why is Paul so confused within a few verses? Well, the grammar of this verse is very tricky and there's much debate over it. But I think the context of speaking the truth to one another within the covenant community, holding one another accountable to the truth of God's will gives us clear understanding. Daniel Wallace, the professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, who's also a renowned Greek grammarian, he gives this explanation of the meaning. This is how he restates verses 26 and 27. One should not give a place to the devil by doing nothing about the sin in the midst of the believing community. This text seems to be a shorthand expression for church discipline, suggesting that there is a biblical warrant for righteous indignation. Wow. Do we view sin that way? Or do we view sin as something, well, God's grace covered it, so it's, it's okay. We can tell from the context that Paul is saying, be angry when sin is found in the covenant community. But just don't take that anger and turn it into further condemnation or further division. You see, many churches talk about being places where sin can be dealt with, but the test of if that's true is if the people actually are open with their sin or hide their sin. Listen carefully, church. This is important for us. The test of whether or not a church is actually based on grace is whether people are open with their sin, with a hope of repentance, Asking for help and accountability? Or if they hide their sin? You can talk about grace all you want, but if the church is made up of people who hide their sin, it is a legalistic church. There's no transparency from pastor or people. It's almost as if blanketing sin with cheap grace and closing our eyes and ears to the sin in our church bodies will make it go away. But dear brothers and sisters, this would be like me getting a cancer diagnosis from my doctor and just hoping that the cancer will stay contained in the few small cells it started in. None of us would say, okay, well, it's just a cancerous mole. If I just pretend that it won't spread, and I keep it quiet from the rest of my body, it'll be okay. There's a reason that we're called the body of Christ. Sin is cancerous, and if it starts in one cell, it will spread. If your marriage has sin in the midst of it, it will spread to other marriages, If you are walking in blatant, rebellious sin, it will spread to other people. So what do we do when cancer is present? Well, we work to identify the part of our body that's cancerous. Not so we can absolutely destroy the whole body over it, but so that we can deal with the cancer. And guys, it is not the individual person that is the cancer when it comes to sin. It is the sin that is unrepentant. We want to save the person and deal with the sin. And so we need to be a church that encourages transparency and vulnerability and a desire to know one another's struggles and temptations. Because if we don't, we're fooling ourselves. If you're a person sitting here today and right now the Holy Spirit is working on you saying, oh, you know that sin that you're hiding from people. And you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but it's better if I hide it. Think about a person who just got a cancer diagnosis and says, I'll just ignore it. Think about what that does to the body. Today, Christ is calling you not to condemn yourself because of sin. He's calling you to step into conviction, to walk in the identity of who you are, to go to the people that surround you and love you, us, and say, I am in sin and I need help. Help me to walk in the truth. Speak the truth in love to me. That's what he's calling us to be. We're called to live in the light and to confess our sins And to be angry about sin in our own life, so much so that we reach out for help and accountability. And then we are called to restore one another gently. Not harshly, gently. We're harsh with sin, not with one another. Turn back a little bit to Galatians chapter 1. Sorry, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. And I want to read something to you here. Galatians 6, starting in verse 1, and realize as we're reading that this is in the context of a brother or sister who has caused a relationship to be strained because of sin. Paul's going to say the other person should go to them and work with them to restore them. Restore them to what? Well, whenever you talk about restore, the wording is always used to restore them to their place in the covenant community and to do so in humility with a motivation of reconciliation and not self-protection. The context here is the body of Christ, the household of faith. So let's just read through it with that context in mind, and I think it will blow open this text for you that we've probably read over many times. Galatians one, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, they're caught in the lie. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, to add to the sin. "'Bear one another's burdens.'" That's talking about sin. "'And so fulfill the law of Christ. "'For if anyone thinks he is something "'when he is nothing, he deceives himself.'" That's the humility piece. "'But let each one test his own work, "'and then his reason to boast "'will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. "'For each will have to bear his own load.'" Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. In other words, if you sow to the lie, you'll reap the lie. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Guys, this isn't a generic do good. The do good here is working with one another to sanctify by speaking the truth in love. That's what this is talking about. And guys, I desire for us to be that church. We, as your leadership, desire for us to be that church. But it takes every one of us committing to some things. Here's what it takes us committing to. Are you ready? Write these down. First, when mistakes are made, because we're human and we will make them, we must hold our commitment to each other higher than our tendency to self-protect and divide. Hold our commitment to each other higher than our tendency to self-protect and divide. Let me say that one more time. Hold our commitment to each other higher than our tendency to self-protect and divide. We will all make mistakes, and when mistakes are made, commitment helps us trust one another so that vulnerability can be fostered. If we don't know where one another stands in terms of commitment, we won't share our deep, dark secrets with them because we will be fearful that they will flee. And it's hard for an environment of vulnerability to grow. We must hold our commitment to each other higher than our tendency to self protect and divide. Secondly, we must commit to one another that we will each be proactively vulnerable and transparent with our sin. If you're one of those people that it takes a team of oxen to pull out of you how you're doing, here's my loving, kind word for you today. Stop it. Be vulnerable. Open up. Well, Hans, that's tough. Yeah, it is for every single person in this room but we must proactively be people that hand ourselves to one another. We're going to see this in Ephesians as we keep going, and it says, submit yourselves one to another. What that means is you're submitting yourself. You're handing yourself, your vulnerability to one another. So we share our shortcomings, our temptations, our brokenness. And we don't hold on to negative feelings and let bitterness grow. Third, we need to deal with conflict quickly. Paul says in Ephesians, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't even let a day go by, he's saying. Lauren read us a passage from Matthew earlier where Jesus said, if you're about to go to the communion table, what is our altar today, and you know that you have conflict with someone, or someone's holding something against you, go to them quickly. Leave it at the altar. Don't take communion. Go and serve them. What's amazing to me is we as Christians, I wonder if we get this. Jesus commands us, our king commands us, if there is conflict, period. Period. Don't go take communion. Go to that person and deal with the conflict. The church would blow the world's mind if we actually did that. Fourth, we must realize that this is one of the main ways that we team up practically to fight against Satan. Ephesians six ten through 11 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We practically wage warfare against the kingdom of darkness in the way we deal with sin and reconciliation within our church body. We practically obey the commands of Jesus in this way. Now, what's also interesting about this verse is that I think Paul is not just saying deal with any old sin, and that is true, we must, but I think he's zeroing in on one sin in particular that's often found within the church. Remember our discussion earlier about giving false witness? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Remember that that's not just lying, that's telling false testimony about a brother or sister. Another way to put this is, you shall not testify as an accuser of your neighbor falsely. I believe this is the particular sin that Paul is talking about here, when he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, why on earth do I believe that? Well, the first thing that leads us to this is right down in your notes, Psalm 4.4. We're not going to go there because of time, but Paul pulls from Psalm 4.4 for this idea of being angry and not sinning. The entire context of Psalm 4, and remember, whenever Paul quotes something from the Old Testament, he's bringing the context of that verse in. That entire psalm is about the psalmist being falsely accused, mischaracterized. Now, he also says, give no room or opportunity to the devil. The word in the Greek is diablos. Everybody say diablos. Okay, Diablos means accuser. Everybody say accuser. Give no room to the accuser. Throughout the New Testament, the name devil is used 34 times, but Paul only uses it five times. He uses Satan twice as much to describe the adversary. Two of the times are here in Ephesians, right here in what I just quoted to you in Ephesians 6. The other three times are in the letters to Timothy, who is the pastor at Ephesus. The only time Paul uses the name Diablos in the Greek is when he is trying to speak to the situation at Ephesus. And it seems that Paul may have been trying to deal with the situation in which false witness or accusation was running rampant in the church of Ephesus. It might be a leap, yes, but I don't think so. There are multiple commentators who made this same uh, observation. I love the point that Marcel made last week when he said to the moms in the church, Do you remember this? He said, Moms, if a baby is born and it looks nothing like your husband, then that is bad news. Remember that when he said that? Well, what was his point? He was saying, Because if a baby looks nothing like their dad, it could be that that child is actually illegitimate. Because we look like those from whom we are made in their image. Children of God are to bear the image of the truth and walk in that truth. Guys, if we find ourselves falsely accusing, whose image are we made in? Diablos. This is why Jesus could so practically say back in John, you are children of the father of lies. You follow him because he's the accuser and you're wrongly accusing me. To falsely accuse is to bear the image of the accuser. That's why gossip is so horrendous within the church. And that's why Jesus called faithful Jews in his day there in John. They were attempting to follow the Torah, but he said, I don't care, you're, the father, of, you're the, of the father of lies. Paul's commanding the church to give no room for the accuser to work within the church. Hear me again. Paul is commanding the church to give no room for the accuser to work within the church. Paul is giving no room for the accuser to work within your marriage. If you find yourself on any given day with your spouse standing there going, oh, you're the problem, and they're going, no, you're the problem, uh, whose image is your marriage made in? The accuser. Paul's commanding the church here. Will we heed his command? Well, how do we do this? Well, we obey. We obey. The third thing I want you to write down today is this. By obeying God's commands, we endeavor to make the church the city of truth. By obeying God's commands, we endeavor to make the church the city of truth. We must endeavor in all ways and at all times to obey all that Christ commanded And I'll I'll hit it one more time because I know it's going to come up. At least one of you is thinking, Hans, this sounds very rule-based and legalistic. Yes. Did you not hear back in Galatians where it says we must fulfill the law of Christ? You are saved by grace, not of works. And you are saved into the kingdom of light in which you will then follow the law of Christ. Well, what happens when I make mistake? Ah, if you are faithful to confess your sin and repent from it, Christ is faithful to forgive you your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. It's an ongoing state of repentance. And so we must endeavor always to try and be that city of truth that Zechariah discussed. Well, how do we do that? Well, here's your application for today. I love these commands because they're so practical for us today. Here's our application. First, you must accept your identity. You must accept your identity. We are ones who have put aside the lie and are walking in the truth. And we need to evaluate our own lives in that constantly. Am I walking in the lie today or in the truth? Oh, this drink will make me happy. Lie. Oh, this TV show will make me happy. Lie. Oh, my spouse is my soulmate and they will make me happy. Lie. Jesus is truth and goodness and joy and happiness and hope, truth. We need to accept our identity. Each of us has been given an identity by the power of the Holy Spirit that was placed in us by the grace of God. And it's by that power that we can learn to progressively obey more and more every day. If you are a person in here today who says, I don't know if I have the Holy Spirit in me. I don't know that I actually am a Christian because I have had no desire to walk in Christ's image, then I would love to talk with you after service about what it is to walk as a Christian, to accept what Jesus did on the cross, that he died for you, that he raised in victory, and that he's calling you into his kingdom. Come talk with me in the back about what it is to walk as a disciple. But secondly, not only accept our identity, Secondly, we need to soak up the truth. How hard is it to bring truth to bear when you have that lie in your brain if you don't know what the truth is? See, many of you, when I talked earlier, uh, ladies, that that, uh, you think to yourself, well, yeah, the voice tells me I'm ugly or a certain part of my body is ugly. Go read in the Psalms how it says that you are wonderfully made. You are knit together perfectly as God desired you to be. We must be in the word constantly soaking up the truth because we're constantly inundated with the lies. I was listening to the radio the other day. I like to listen to 80s music. Uh, You know that one 80s song, Tell Me Lies, Sweet Little Lies? I was just sitting there and I'm like, oh my gosh, everything even on the radio is telling us to live in the lie, right? You think, well Hans, that's just one song. No, turn on secular music and just listen to it for a while. It's all lies, it's all lies. How can we know the truth in order to combat the lie unless we inundate our minds and renew our minds with the word of God constantly? So if you're a person who's like, ah, I just, the Bible doesn't excite me. Well, that means the truth doesn't excite you. Get in the truth. Third, be careful with accusation. I need to hear this. You need to hear this. We all do. When we have an accusation, the thing we need to do is make sure that it is concrete and true because we're called to speak the truth to one another. Well, Hans, how do I do that? Well, you have to ask yourself, is your accusation based on a time, a place, and an action? A time, a place, and an action. If you want to go tell somebody, I I just don't like you because you're mean, is that a concrete accusation? No. No. But if you go to someone and you say, on Tuesday at 3 o'clock over by the vending machine, you called me a jerk and it hurt my feelings, is that a concrete, truthful accusation? Yes. Time, place, and action. Not personality or personal preference. Well, Hans, what, what if I don't know and I need to talk to somebody to see if this is a concrete accusation? Well, make sure that you're not going to someone to talk to them about it to form an alliance to get them on your side. Go talk to someone who's wise and you know won't take sides and will give you truth about whether or not you're just being too sensitive or actually it's a concrete accusation. And if it's not a sin and you seem to have something against someone and you're sitting there going, well, I want to accuse them, but I don't have any concrete accusation, then what you need to do is you need to pray for the Lord to change your heart toward that person. And you have to ask yourself, why do I want to accuse them? What is it that is making me want to accuse them? Fourth, if our accusation is concrete and accurate, then we employ Matthew 1815 and go to our brother or sister personally, immediately. Everybody say it with me? Personally, immediately. You do not text, you do not Skype, you do not email, you do not write a letter. Well, Hans, what if my emotions? Well, if your emotions are out of control, probably you're operating in the flesh and you need to pray for the Lord to calm you before you go speak the concrete accusation. Personally and immediately. I'm saying it funny so that it gets stuck in your head. (laughs) And you state it to them if they've not already come to you already because you want to make sure that your aim is reconciliation. If all you want them to do is to listen to you, that's not an aim of reconciliation if you want to be heard and you want them to be heard and you want to be understood together, then that is reconciliation. Fifth, that's the whole point. It's got to be for the purpose of reconciliation. If the person disagrees, and we should be disagreeing with each other as nicely as possible, and it's still okay to disagree... We should still be desiring reconciliation to the point where we go and get a third party to get involved and help us, and we should agree beforehand to submit to that additional party's thoughts. And if we still disagree, then Matthew 18 tells us to then go to the elders of the church and let the Holy Spirit use your leadership to decide an outcome and be ready to submit to that outcome for the glory of God. For those of you that are covenant members, I sent out as part of the agenda an article on the fact that deacons are shock absorbers in the church. One of the main roles of the deacons within our church is to be involved in your community group so that when they see conflict arising between you, they can sit you down as adults and help you resolve the conflict. Don't hide your stuff from them. Give it to them. So-and-so is really annoying me in the community group. Meanwhile, Satan is going, (laughs) This is going to be fun. So what do you do? You go to the leaders of your community group and say, so-and-so is annoying me. And they can say, do you have a concrete accusation? And you can say, no, they're just annoying. And they can tell you to go pray and fast. Or they can tell tell you if you have a concrete accusation, okay, let's sit down together with them. Are you going to go talk to them one-on-one? Yes, I will. And then you work through the process. This is how we grow as a church and mature as a church. Now, a giant key to conflict resolution, and I realize I'm going long, guys, but this is core to what we need to be as a church. A giant key to conflict resolution within the church is that these situations cannot run solely based upon our individual and personal feelings. This is a key for marriages. This is a key for the church. Our situations cannot run solely based upon our individual and personal feelings. If we do, it simply speaks to our immaturity and it becomes what's called emotional blackmail. I want to read to you a great quote from John Piper on this topic. I have seen so much emotional blackmail in my ministry, I am jealous to raise a warning against it, Piper says. Emotional blackmail happens when a person equates his or her emotional pain with another person's failure to love. They are not the same. A person may love well and the beloved still feel hurt and use the hurt to blackmail the lover into admitting guilt he or she does not have. Emotional blackmail says, if I feel hurt by you, Then you are guilty. It's what our entire world is running on right now. It's called Twitter and Facebook. Piper continues there is no defense. The hurt person has become God, his emotion has become judge and jury. Truth does not matter. All that matters is the sovereign suffering of the aggrieved. It is above question. This emotional device, Piper says, is a great evil. I have seen it often in my three decades of ministry, and I'm eager to defend people who are being wrongly, wrongly indicted by it. Now, we can know that the flesh has taken over when we see these three things happening. First, we can see that accusations are not concrete or are based solely on feelings. And we have to make sure that our feelings measure and equate with the accusation. If you say, I want to divorce my husband. Why? Well, because he didn't kiss me before he left for work. Does that match? Is that congruent? No, it doesn't. That's when flesh is taking over. Okay? So accusations that are not concrete or based solely on feelings. Secondly, if it's an accusation without other unbiased witnesses, right? That's why the Bible says over and over, two or three w- witnesses need to be there. This is why Paul told Timothy, again, I believe, because of the situation at Ephesus, he'd said to Timothy, Don't even admit a charge against an elder unless there are multiple witnesses. Third, we need to speak for the purpose of reconciliation, not just for the purpose of speaking. If our motivation is simply to state our opinion without a willingness to move towards reconciliation, Especially in the age of Facebook and Twitter rants, we have become people who are all too willing to speak but do not want to listen. And Christians are to be those that are quick to hear, slow to speak, not the other way around. If you find yourself wanting to go and tell someone off and not hear from them, it is 100% flesh. Now, why is this all so important, guys? Why is this all so important? Because... We can go proclaim the gospel as much as we want, but if we are not managing our own household of the body of Christ well, no one will want to be part of this group we call Christians. We are to be a divine preview of the fullness of the glorified people of God. And what is that fullness? Well, remember Zechariah 8, where God's people are spoken of as the city of truth? Turn with me to Revelation really quick, and I want to show you a couple quick things. This is the last place I'll turn you and then we'll be done. Revelation 21, 27. Revelation 21, 27. Notice the imagery that the Apostle John uses as he describes the New Jerusalem, the bride. That's what he starts out with in chapter 21. He's talking about the church. And notice what he says metaphorically here in verse 27. He says nothing unclean will ever enter it, meaning the people of God, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We are supposed to be people who walk in the truth, not in what is false, put away all falsehood. And he continues on in chapter 22, verses 14 and 15. Look at what it says there. John says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the people of God are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices the lie, falsehood. Guys, we have to take sin seriously. Not because we want to be sin sniffers or fault finders, as I've heard it said. But think about this, guys. How unwise would we be if we were about to buy a house and we were not fault finders? What's the foundation? Is there a crack in the foundation? How wise would we be if we were people that got a cancer diagnosis and said, well, I don't want to be cancer sniffers. I don't want to find out cancer. I'm just going to ignore it. No, the whole point of dealing with sin is not to go and search out sin and falsely accuse. That's everything here. But when sin does exist, we must deal with it lovingly, caringly, gently, immediately and personally. Or else we will not be fulfilling obediently our job to be that city on a hill, that city of truth, showing the world that we follow the one who proclaimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. I want to be that city. Do you? Mission Fellowship, do you want to be that city? So when the devil accuses you personally, tell him that he is right, that you are to be accused. But tell him that you have a redeemer that died in your place and has resurrected you anew. And when he tells you to accuse someone else, look him in the face and point out the fact that that brother or sister has had that same Redeemer die for them. And you are on their side, not on his. We stand firm against the devil. He has no place in this church. Amen?